Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very kindly sponsored by Oh Lovely. Oh Lovely is a beautiful Irish company built on belief, the belief that you can be anything and everything you wish to be. All Oh Lovely candles and diffusers contain crystals and gemstones to increase energy and to power your beliefs. So whether you're taking some well-earned me time, pausing to reflect and reconnect, or sending positive thoughts to loved ones, Oh Lovely positive affirmation candles make the perfect gift. Oh Lovely have very kindly offered unspoken listeners 20% off site-wide when using code UNSPOKEN. Today, I am joined by Helen, who has very bravely agreed to share her unspoken with us. During our conversation, Helen speaks to me about navigating two very serious life-altering health diagnoses in very close proximity of one another and the impact this has had on her life. She recalls the moment her worst nightmare came true as she sat alone in her hospital bed, the incredibly difficult conversations she had when telling her young sons, and how despite all the cards being stacked against her, she has gone on to live a life of positivity and joy. Helen, welcome to Unspoken. It's so, so beautiful to have you with me today. So thank you for being here. I would love to go right back to where this story began for you. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm so grateful to you. Um, This, my story, started in uh, June of 2017. Um, I had just come back from travel with work. I was uh, going to Aldi to buy wetsuits for my boys. And I didn't feel particularly well, felt a little bit strange. I just thought it was because of the week that I had. I was traveling um, in my role and I just thought I was tired. It was a Friday. Um, I was looking after and had a sleepover for my uh, cousin's son. She was staying with me, uh, with my boys. And uh, we all came home and I went to bed. Um, I got up the next morning and I was feeling very unwell. I couldn't stand. Um, the The room was revolving around me um, and I ended up calling my, my pop and I asked him to come and collect the boys. Had you felt this way before? Never. Um, never. I had never felt ill before. I had never felt unwell before. Never had this sensation before. It's totally alien. I didn't know what was going on. Um, I went back to bed and I progressively started feeling worse and worse. Um, I rang my lovely neighbour, Gail, and said, Gail, I need to go to the doctor, I think. Uh, I wouldn't be one for a drama, so I didn't call an ambulance. So I kind of thought, you know, let's go to the doc and see if they can see what's going on with me because it was a bit strange. 
Um, and so she put me into the car, but I couldn't even walk to the car. When we got to the when we got to the GPs, she had to go in and get the GP. There wasn't even a wheelchair in the GPs. They had to bring me out a, a an office chair. I couldn't walk. Um, at that stage, my whole left hand side had gone. I'd lost the use of my left hand side. I couldn't talk. Um, and the locum doctor that was on duty that particular afternoon called the ambulance. Ambulance came and whisked me straight into Blanchardstown Hospital. How were you feeling at this time, arriving to the doctors and not being able to speak or move? I actually don't remember a lot of what happens, but I have pockets of memory. I, I think maybe my pop might would have told me a couple of different memories, but I don't have a huge recollection of that. Um, I do, my next memory certainly was uh, waking up in the CCU, uh, in the critical care unit in Blanchardstown. And I was attached to all these machines and wires and uh, noises and gone what what is going on what's happening oh my god and nobody could tell me what was happening they could tell me that it hadn't been a stroke but nobody knew what it was Mm. because it had all the telltale signs of being a stroke and after uh, about a five or six days there I was moved from there to a geriatrician ward I had that stage been put through lots of different tests and ECGs and MRIs and CTs and all of this, all of the, you name it, I did that test. And I arrived up onto the ward and still no outcome. Um, and the only bed that was there for me were, was in a geriatrician um, ward. And, uh, and that's where I stayed for the next uh, six, five weeks. Um, so nobody knew what was wrong. Nobody was telling me anything. In fairness, they weren't telling me anything because they didn't know what to tell me. And do you remember during these weeks, what was going on for you, what you were thinking? That first week was, uh, I think people use the word surreal, but um, it was, uh, it was surreal. It was, it was, it's almost unexplainable. I didn't know. I was, uh, partially scared out of my wits, mm. but really relieved that it wasn't a stroke because they could categorically say, that's okay, Helen, you don't, ha- it's not a stroke. So I was going, okay, good. Uh, I was feeling so poorly that really I was kind of feeling nothing. Um, And the fear that was there, the terror? um, At that stage, it was uncertainty, a a little bit of fear, more uncertainty, um, because really I didn't know what to be fearful of at that stage, if that makes sense to you. Um, And then um, I was lying in my bed one day and... uh, it was on the 25th of July um, of 2017. And I was on my own um, because all of my family was at 
my lovely cousin Nessa, her husband passed away and they were all at his funeral, Alan Barry. And everybody was there and I was lying on my bed. And the the geriatrician, the, the doctor came in and pulled around the curtain and uh, and and said, Helen, we need to we need to I need to tell you something or we need to talk. And I went, OK. And uh, she said, Helen, you have multiple sclerosis. <laughs> and I went, I beg your pardon, like MS. You. What? I was sitting on that bed on my own and. Uh, on my own, I was thinking to myself, what do you mean MS? I've just been doing triathlons, running all this, that and the other. Like I was super fit. I'd never been sick a day in my life. What do you mean MS? What is what is MS? And what was she, it like to to be on that bed by yourself and for this to just hit you like a wave? It was the most unspeakable. <laughs> Sorry, excuse the pun. The most unspeakable place that I've ever been. The darkest place. I was uh, utterly petrified. Um, I was numb, actually, probably. Mm. I was going... I hadn't... I really thought that I hadn't heard her properly. I was... And I couldn't go anywhere. Like, I couldn't get up and walk or... Uh, hide or anything like that because I, I couldn't walk. I was in the bed. Um, I had my phone and I texted my brother and I asked him to come to the hospital. Now, remember, he was in the church at Alan's funeral. And honest to God, I think Brian's car had wings because <laughs> one minute he was in that church Next minute, he, he was sitting on the bed beside me, holding my hand. And I looked at him and I went, Brian, I have MS. And he cried with me. Now, for those who know my brother, he's a bit of a tough nut, Brian. Um, and for him to uh, sit there and hold me in his arms... And cry with me was possibly one of the most special moments of my life. Um, what was special about it, Helen? Because my brother was there to my to mind me. I felt very alone, and uh, and suddenly I have this uh, person that's there to hold me in their arms and to cry with me. Mm. I could see the fear in his eyes. He held it together for me. Mm. And then he uh, he went out to the hospital. I think he must have phoned my pop, uh, told my pop what had happened. And then everybody left. The, uh, the funeral had finished at this stage and everybody was in the hotel and my dad told everybody and uh, then 
everybody descended, everybody being the Fahis, my clan, mm. descended, arrived. Descend is not the right word, arrived. Mm. You were no longer alone on that bed. No, no. And I haven't been alone since. Um, but that was telling them was um, just telling them was worse than hearing it from the doctor, Clota. What was it like to tell them? It was heartbreaking. I, uh, it was heartbreaking. I'm the eldest in my family. I, uh, my mum has passed. I kind of took on the mantle of being the matriarch and the protector. And suddenly I'm here telling my family that I'm sick, that I have MS. So my eldest boy, Jack, who was um, 16 at the time, my dad uh, went home and the following day told, brought Jack in to speak to me. Jack is my eldest, Finn is my youngest boy. Finney was 11 at the time and Jack was 16 at the time. And so dad brought uh, Jack in and I had to tell Jack. I actually don't remember um, what I said to Jack or how I said it to Jack. Mm. Uh, I do remember hugging him and telling him that everything is going to be all right. But I don't know what I said. Finn at this stage knew that I was in hospital, but didn't have any idea. And I didn't want him to know. I didn't want him to see me like that because I was very unwell. Mm. He was 11. Mm. Um, so I had to, I was, I went from a wheelchair because uh, I couldn't walk to a Zimmer frame. The OT guys got me from a Zimmer frame to a walking stick in about another two weeks. So I was in a, in hospital maybe a month, perhaps. Mm. And I felt well enough for Eamon, who's my former husband. He brought Finn in to see me. And I told my boy, um, sitting on a windowsill, a low windowsill in the main corridor of Blanchardstown Hospital. And wh what did I say to him? I told him I had a thing called MS. I said, uh, it's, uh, it's what's making me sick at the moment, but let's not worry about it too much because, you know, the doctors say they're able to um, give me medication for it. We'll figure it out. It's all good. Um, but my wee boy was sitting next to me and the fear in his eyes was just heartbreaking. Eamon, the fear in Eamon's eyes was heartbreaking. The fear in everybody's eyes, Clodagh, when you tell them that you're poorly, is heartbreaking. For the person who's delivering that message, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So you've talked there about being in that awful, awful situation of having to tell your two sons you know, that you were diagnosed with MS and you were doing your absolute best to protect them and to mind them in that. But 
you know, behind all of that, what were the doctors saying? What was happening? What were you hearing? I was told I had MS. And that was all I was told. The doctor who dealt with me, the most wonderful lady, was a geriatrician. She wasn't a neurologist. The doctors told me I had MS. And that was it. I didn't know what MS was until I did a Dr. Google on it. The doctors told me nothing other than the headline story, which was, Helen, you have MS. Yeah. I didn't know what MS or I didn't speak to a doctor. That was in the, the July. I didn't speak to a doctor until the October. Um, and even then, I didn't get a huge amount of information really a huge amount of information I got more but that's it that's that's all I was told Clodagh was that you had MS so being in that space where you are hit with MS which is huge but not really knowing anything else what was that like for you well at least it wasn't a stroke okay that was my first thing um, I thought I I googled it and it frightened the bejesus out of me. What scared you? Um, you could end up in a wheelchair. Uh, it'll affect your mobility. It'll affect your cognitive uh, wellness, and it has done. And I can't sometimes find some very easy words. It has affected my mobility slightly. Um. It it's it's not some it's something that is eminently treatable, um, and I have been through lots of different forms of medication for it uh, to to help me with the MS. Really and truly, I got onto the internet, and I read pretty much every and I'd say I pretty much read every single article or you know Doctor Google and I put that in inverted commas kind of uh, link. And none of it was good news. And that fear coupled with the deluge of, of information that I was reading online, the two of them together just brought me to, I, I call it, this is where I ended up for nine months, down a rabbit hole. I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I became depressed. I uh, didn't go outside of the house. Um... I just wasn't able. I couldn't cope. I had no coping mechanisms. I, I, and I didn't have counselling or I didn't have, at that stage I had nothing until the new year. And then I decided, okay, Helen, you have to get yourself together. You need to get back on track, you know, pull up your big girl pants, get back to work and let's figure it out from there. Mm. And um, I went back to work in the March um, my uh, incredible job at the time and the people in work were so kind to me and gave me that space and time. But was I well? No, I wasn't well, but I was well enough to go back to work. I had started some level of medication, um, uh, but I, I went back to work because I figured mentally that would be the best thing for me. Mm. And uh, to a certain extent, I thought, do you know what? At least if I'm working, I'll have you know, something that will distract me. 
Yeah. Um, and so I did. I went back to work. And were your boys living at home with you at the time? Yes. And they, they, well, you'd probably need to ask them about how I was back then. But I'll tell you that I was not particularly nice. I wasn't a great mom. I was very depressed. Um, uh, anger came very quickly to me. Um, they probably got the brunt of that. Um, sorry, not probably. They they very likely did get the brunt of that. Um, they were scared because they could see I was sick. Mm. And then also coupled with the fact that I have two young fellas who are probably most the two most intuitive people that I know. Like they can sense, they could sense, they could see, they could sense that I was not well. Mm. So you go back to work. Go back to work. And then you relapse. I was only back in back in work six weeks. <laughs> six weeks and I relapsed. So I ended up in being um, admitted to hospital and and I ended up in my as I fondly call it my cupboard my private room which technically was a cupboard <laughs> and uh, and I had the relapse that's I have relapsing remitting MS so it's kind of par for the course that you're going to relapse remit you never end up when you have a relapse with MS you never end up quite where you started you always have a deficit of some sense, of okay. some level. Um, but on one particular morning, uh, this Dr. Nadi had come in with his team of student doctors. And and he asked, uh, as he was leaving, I said, Dr. Nadi, can I ask you to stay back for me just for a second? He said, I have a lump here. And I, and I pointed towards my groin. And I said to him, would you take a look at this? It's probably something to do about nothing might have something to do with the MS, but I've noticed it in the last day or two. I'd lost weight. Um, and because I was in hospital and lying down, it had become very prominent. And he took a feel on my right hand side and then took a feel on my left hand side. And I had two fairly substantial lumps, both in my groin, pelvic area. And then Everything happened. Everything kicked off. I was being sent for tests for this, for that, for the other. Um, I was eventually uh, told nothing. I was going, what's this all about? They really didn't know what it was all about. But they they discharged me on the Friday. And, and I said, I'm only leaving the hospital if you promise me, because they had said to me that they'll give me, a, do a biopsy. And I was going, shit, what does a biopsy mean? And did they explain to you why? No, no. And I was in on the Monday mm. and I had a biopsy and I looked at her square in the eye and I said, is this something that I need to be worried about? Because these lumps were down in my ovaries right that's where they were okay mm -hmm. and I said is this something I need to be worried about and she went look let's just wait and see what the biopsy has to say but she said Helen you there may be a problem you could have a problem here and I went what might that problem be and she said well it it may be it may be she said ovarian cancer 
but we're going to send the biopsy to the lab. We're going to get a res- we're going to get the results back, and we'll know for sure in the next week. Oh my God! So you are in hospital for a relapse for MS, and all of a sudden you're lying there, being told you could possibly have ovarian cancer. What was that moment like, Helen? <laughs> it was just absolutely unbelievable now I was quaking in my boots then because and I did what I did before and I said I wouldn't do again on I went to Dr Google Mm. I was down in the day ward and I was sitting there and uh, and I went online and when you when you Google ovarian cancer (laughs) um, the news is not good now so at this stage um, I had I had convinced myself not convinced myself I had thought this could be that yeah so I, I, my dad came to collect me my sister was in the car and uh, and I looked at the pair of them and I went my sister's a pharmacist one of my sisters is a pharmacist and I went guys I could be in trouble it could be ovarian cancer and Lilo, my sister, of course, knows all this. Yeah. But dad's driving the car. And do you know where we went? Do you know what we did? We went straight to a pub <laughs> in the town in, in Malahide where I, I was born in Rare, or when I was at Rared. And then the family again descended. Mm. And uh, we sat around a round table in this particular pub and we drank pints or gin and tonics or whatever. And we went from pure hysteria in terms of crying to pure hysteria in terms of laughing. And because every nobody knew, everybody was going, what do you mean? We all thought I had ovarian cancer. We had, you know, this lady wasn't going to say something unless she was almost 100% sure, do you know? Yeah. And she and- said, just prepare yourself, just prepare yourself. And when was she due to kind of let you know? Uh, within, she told me within a week. Uh, worst case scenario, 10 days. Okay, a long 10 days. A, a long 10 days that actually morphed into eight weeks. How did you get through those eight weeks? <laughs> um, I actually don't know. In a blur, mm. a, adrenaline. Mm. Um, and I went, okay, I have to protect my boys I um the family were in abs- a, a grip of absolute fear and we were all fearful. The only person at that stage that I phoned was the boy's dad, Eamon, to say, I think I might be in trouble here, Eamon. Um, and I need to tell you because I might have cancer. And uh, that might mean that I'm going to die. And you need to mind our boys. What was it like to, not even to to say those words, but to have those thoughts? Like, Clodagh, you know, my Finn, my Finn was 11. Jack was 16. What do you mean I'm not going to be around for them? Yeah. Like, do I not get to see them grow up? 
do, do I not get to see them do their leaving cert? Do I not get to see them go and have a pint with them? Yeah. Meet somebody, get married, have children, not have children. Do I not get to see them grow up? Like, like... It's unbearable to think about. Absolutely unbearable. Yeah. And totally unspeakable. And yeah. and for anybody that has been in that position that has to, has to uh, figure that out... Jenny, uh, well, it's it's just r- ridiculously difficult. <laughs> so eight weeks later, you so get eight a call. weeks later, uh, I got a I got a call from the hospital um, to come in and meet. So myself and my dad uh, went in, and we were met by a doctor, and we were told I was told my dad sitting beside me. I was told that I had uh, neuroendocrine cancer I was going okay can I just point out that the day I was told I had neuroendocrine cancer was 362 days after the day I was told I had multiple sclerosis oh Helen so again what did I do (laughs) went back online again (laughs) note to oneself Helen you know stop going online yeah and um, Professor O'Toole said lots of things I don't remember an awful lot but I tell you he turned around and he said um, we can't there this cancer is treatable we can give you palliative treatment to manage this cancer and I said I beg your pardon palliative so what uh, palliative but palliative to me means you're going to die. Palliative is kind of giving you medication to, you know, to make life easy for you. Do you know, that's, that's the only, that's the only uh, definition of palliative that, I, that immediately sprung to my head. Yeah. And, um, and I went, what do you mean it's palliative? And he said, there, this is not a cancer that can be cured. Yeah, not a cancer that can be cured. But it can be treated. What was it like for to hear that? I looked at my dad. He looked at me. I don't even actually. I didn't even cry. I I just sat there and listened. And then, because I didn't know what to say, Clodagh. I had. I didn't know what to say, so I looked at. Pop, and I actually fell into his arms and I said to him, I said, Jesus, Pop, I can't even bloody do cancer properly. Now, I don't actually know what that meant, mm. but I kind of thought I'm going, I'm bringing more grief and sadness to my family's door, like, and to, to my boys. I'm doing that. You blamed yourself? I did, yeah. I did. So do you stay in hospital? Do you go home? I went home. Okay. Yeah. What did what did you do? When there was you went no home? treatment. <laughs> this cancer was in my small intestine. It was in my ovaries. It's in my liver. It's in my lungs. It's in my pancreas. It's in my chest cavity. It's in my lymph nodes. It's in my right breast. Yeah. I kind of laugh sometimes because I figure the MS has from the chin up. 
<laughs> in my head because it's neurological mm. and uh, and the cancer kind of has from my neck down oh my god telling you boys you know <laughs> so telling the boys about that was um I was just incredible was incredibly difficult my plan originally was for uh, the to get the two boys together with Eamon in the sitting room and 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 deliver this message in a very gentle way what happened subsequently was one of the days that I was at home before I had was ready before we had scheduled to talk about it myself and Eamon and with the boys Jack turned around to me and said mom what's going on and I said, love, I'm not, I'm not very well. And he went, but it's not the MS, is it? And I said, no, darling, it's not the MS. Mm. So I said, come on in here now and sit down. I remember the seat she was sitting on. And I said, honey, I have, uh, I have cancer. And my boy fell to his knees. <laughs> I had to go in pick him up so if we can recall at this stage he's only 17 years of age and his mom is telling him that he's got she's got cancer she just finished telling him that she has ms and now she has cancer and he said mom could you die from it and i said yeah yes love i can because it's not a cancer that has a cure for So I told Jack um, and then Jack, at the end of telling Jack, I, uh, which was like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I asked him a favour. I said, love, any chance that you would be, uh, any chance that you would be here when we talk to Finn. So Finn came home. Paul uh, Finn into the sitting room one day and said, look, Finny, we just need to have a chat. I was saying it was like a family conference type thing. The boys thought they were in trouble. Finny thought he was in trouble. <laughs> That's mostly because Finny was in trouble a lot when he was that age. Um, and, uh, and I said to Finn, I'm not well, love. And he says, I know, Mum, you've got MS. And I said, no, honey, I, I have uh, cancer. And I've never seen his his eyes on his most beautiful blue eyes. They just were like saucers in his head. And he looked immediately at Jack. And my boy Jack held it together. Right? For his brother. So that his brother was looking to Jack almost for validation. Because if Jack had started crying, Finn would have just lost his life. And my boy Jack held it together for his brother on behalf of his brother. Now, let me tell you, that takes some strength for a 17-year-old lad to do that and some amount of love for him to do that for his brother. And he did it. So I can hear you doing your best to look after your boys and to look after your family and your dad. How were you? How were you? How were you coping with what was happening for you do you know do you know what I find at that time or what I've looking back now I I I was busy telling people um 
trying to uh, have a narrative that would mind everybody explaining myself to everybody individually, friends, family, telling them the story. Mm. It was exhausting. But I felt the need to be able to tell them from me to them what was going on. Mm. And that allowed me not to feel anything. It allowed me to tell a story. But I didn't. That story was about me, but I didn't. I wasn't owning it. Mm. If that makes sense. You stepped outside. Totally. Yeah. I told the story. Yeah. But I didn't feel the story. Yeah. Did that help you to cope? 100 percent. It I I I just got on with it. And how has life been for you since? Um, this might sound mad. Um, wonderful. I am in such a great place. Now, I've worked on it. I have figured it out. I've kind of unpacked that box that I very firmly put a box of emotions that I very firm put on a, on the shelf and right and I have been unpacking that slowly but surely. Words are very important to me and 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 positivity is very important to me and albeit I I call them the twins, the MS and the cancer lives in my superhero body because she is a superhero, right? They live in it, mm. okay? And I live with it. Mm. I haven't, they're not my besties, but I've kind of made friends with them now. So I'm not in that dark hole anymore. I have, I, I can see such a bright light. I am in such a, a, a phenomenal space. Um, I don't, I'm well, uh, I I probably not very well. My insides are probably not. I know my insides are not well. There's not an awful lot any of us can do about that because there's n- we are where we are with that. So I don't focus in on any of that sort of stuff. And I park it and I go and I live my life. Wow, that is so powerful to hear you say that. I I just can't. I'm really struggling to comprehend how you can, how you've gotten to this place where you are so positive. It's wonderful, but I just, I don't know how you've done it. I think, um, I, I don't think, I know for a fact that, um, I now have what I call a bag of tricks. Yeah. I'm like a magician. I have, I have different tricks. So, and, and a lot of my, um, power comes from, uh, acceptance and mm. forgiveness and going, okay, it is what it is. Let's see what let's my, my, um, focus is being here for as long as I can be to be around my boys mm. for as long as I can be mm. to enjoy my family and friends mm. and to be happy and joyful and enjoy every day. Yeah. That's, that's where I want. That's where I am. Mm. And I use my my different tricks, to, tools to get me to where that is, yeah. that place of happiness. You said forgiveness. What yeah. did you mean by that? Well, I had to forgive myself um, because I thought I had brought this upon myself. I had to give forgive myself because I had brought uh, such uh, angst and sadness to the to my boys and to my family and friends. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of forgiveness that needed to be done there. 
I'm still forgiving myself. Um, you don't want, you don't ever want to be in a place where you have to tell those that love you dearly that you're not well. I've been on the the receiving end of that and it's hard. Yeah. It's very difficult. And to do it in a way that's gentle and compassionate and yet to do it in a way that that delivers a message succinctly but not with drama and trying to manage the emotion then that's coming back at you. Mm. And that's why I told stories. That's why... I didn't have to deal with my emotions because I was dealing with everybody else's emotions. And I was cool with that because dealing with everybody else's emotions meant that I didn't have to look at myself. Mm. It wasn't until everybody else was had almost calmed because things are calmer now, pretty much calm, that I was able to look into myself and figure out my own emotions. Mm. And that's when my healing started. And that's where I am, and that's where I am right now. Helen shared her unspoken so beautifully with us today. What a brave, resilient soul she is to survive her darkest days and to blossom as she has into such a strong, optimistic and joyful person. Throughout Helen's story, I was really struck by the fear the fear that was present for her, the fear that was present by her family, the fear that was present for her young sons. And I was most likely struck by this fear because it was so familiar to me in that it mirrored my own when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and when he died. So if you too can relate to Helen's fear or the fear of her family or my fear, for whatever reason, this really beautiful exercise is for you. Whether you are currently in the midst of this fear or it every so often grips you unexpectedly, just as it does for me. To begin, find a comfortable position to lie or sit in and close down your eyes. Gently connect your awareness to your breath, taking slow and steady deep breaths in and out. Fall into a rhythm that feels natural to you. And as you tune into your breath and the rise and fall of your chest, notice how your body is responding to this nurturing stillness. All you have to do in this moment is breathe. Everything else can wait. This is your time. And if you notice your mind starting to drift off as we complete this exercise together, just gently return your awareness to your breath and this rise and fall of your chest. And if you would like an extra anchor, whether in this moment or when your mind does drift off, gently place one hand on your belly and the other on your heart and connect in with this gentle movement of your body. I'll invite you now to bring to mind an image of your younger self in your mind's eye. Allow this little girl or boy to show up at whatever age he or she is. There's no right or wrong here. Your intuition and inner wisdom will guide you, so trust what surfaces. Really bring to mind this image of your younger self. What is he or she wearing? What way is their hair? What expression do they have on their face? Connect with this younger version of you in your mind's eye 
as vividly as you can. Where is this little boy or girl as you visualize them? What surrounds them? What are they doing? Do they look happy and joyful? Or perhaps sad, scared and alone? Again, trust whatever arises for you. When the time feels right, I'd like you to visualize your adult self walking towards this little boy or girl and gently letting them know you have arrived. How do they respond upon seeing you? Do they welcome you or are they cautious? Allow them to take the lead. Spend some time with them, perhaps slowly getting to know each other if they are cautious or offering them love and affection if they are glad you have arrived. If they are happy to see you and if it feels right for you, embrace them, cuddle them or simply hold their hand. Notice how this feels in your body as you do this. Connect with them as deeply as feels right for you both. Next, let this little child in front of you know that you are here to care for them and to look after them and that they are no longer alone. Share with them that you know they have been feeling really scared recently and comfort them and validate how they have been feeling and the weight they have been carrying. Remind them that they are no longer alone and that you have arrived now to care for them and to look after them. Soothe their fear exactly as you would with a small child, reassuring them that whatever happens, you will be here with them and you'll look after them, you'll keep them safe. Spend as much time soothing and comforting them as they need, as you both need. When you're both ready, having taken as much time as you need, let them know that it's time for you to leave, but share with them that you can bring them with you. You can tuck them up snugly in your heart or somewhere else in your body that feels right for you, so that they can stay with you if this is what they would like to do. And if they are indeed happy to come with you, visualize gently tucking them in, somewhere snug and cozy in your body. For example, as I already mentioned, perhaps in your heart. Tuck them in here in a big, warm, cozy bed until they feel comfortable and snug perhaps rubbing their hair or sitting with them as they close their eyes and start to drift off. As they do so, remind them that they are safe and that just as has happened today, whenever they need you, you will be close by to comfort and soothe them, especially when they get scared. Stay with them until you feel ready to return to the outside world and when you do, gently retreat, leaving them to rest. When you are ready to finish this exercise and to return to the outer world as I have mentioned, slowly start to shift your awareness back to the room you were in. Start by wriggling your fingers and your toes and then slowly stretch out your body, perhaps raising your arms above your head, bringing your shoulders up to meet your ear or pulling your shoulder blades back together behind you. Move your body in whatever way feels right to you or in whatever way you feel you need to. And when you are ready, slowly open up your eyes, coming back to the present moment and the environment you are in. On doing so, 
check in how you are feeling. How has your body responded to this exercise? How is your fear now if it was present for you? Perhaps you feel relaxed, comforted, soothed. I really hope so. And if so, remember that you can return to this exercise anytime you need to do so. For if you can soothe your scared inner child, you will in turn also soothe yourself. This powerful exercise is one I use regularly with my clients and one they go on to practice outside of our sessions by themselves. I really hope you find this as beneficial as they do and that it helps you to calm and settle that fear when it arrives, as it sometimes does for me. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I've listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial.